How many are happy to be in God's house this morning? Can you say amen? amen. God is good, is he not? He's good all the time. Uh, very excited about the baptism this afternoon at City of the Lord Zion Church in Oakland. Uh, diamond is spelled D-I-M-O-N-D. It's not the regular word diamond, but it's spelled D-I-M-O-N-D. That was incorrect on the announcements. Diamond Avenue in Oakland, California, City of the Lord Zion Church. If you want to look it up, I'm sure there's going to be a bunch of us caravanning over there after the service is over. And uh, we're going to have a wonderful time if you'd like to join us for that. Uh, praise the Lord. We are in part nine of our 10-part finance series. Can you believe that next Sunday we're going to bring this thing in for a landing? And uh, have you enjoyed it so far? Has the Lord spoken to you so far? Has he given you new financial vision? I just really believe that what God wants to do is expand your borders and widen your horizons as far as your finances are concerned. He does not want you to be restricted in mind. He does not want you to be limited in resources, but he wants to cause you to abound in all things so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you may abound in every good work. And that's really what it's all about. Financial freedom, financial blessing. And we're going back to the blessing this year. Amen? Amen. So part 9 is verse 9 of Psalm chapter 112. Psalm chapter 112. And this is what it says. He has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Say it. He has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Say it again. That's so weak. Come on, say it like it's not dribbling out of you. Scattered abroad. Come on, say it like you're preaching it. Like, like, like somebody's salvation depends upon you saying this with fire. Come on, say it. He has One more time. Today I want to talk to you about a righteousness that endures. A righteousness that endures. Now about 10 years ago, my grandmother went home to be with the Lord. She was 90 years old. And during the last days of her life, she was staying at a convalescent home, a convalescent hospital. One night, my brother Charles and I were visiting her late at night. Charles at that time was in the afro stages of his, uh, of his life. And he had a humongous afro. I mean, he had just let his hair grow for years and it was all over the place. Just crazy, just crazy, just nuts. And uh, we were in the room. It was later in the evening, later at night, and we were visiting my grandmother. And the nurse came in the room and asked us to step out into the waiting room so that she could work with my grandmother a little bit. So my brother and I go into the waiting room. It's freezing cold outside. It's the dead of winter. Well, freezing cold for California, <laughs> for the Bay Area, probably about like 40 degrees. But um, an old gentleman who was about 97 years old, he was an old retired preacher who lived in that convalescent house hospital, old retired black Church of God in Christ preacher. And, and he walked around on a walker and he just preached sermons to everybody he saw. And he walked into the waiting room on his walker late at night. He should have been asleep. But he looks up and he sees my brother with this humongous afro and my brother was just wearing a polo shirt. And he looked at my brother and thought he was homeless. And he said, you sleeping outside tonight? And before my brother could say, no, I'm not homeless, he looked at me and said, if thou seest thy brother in need and thou shuttest up thy bowels of compassion against him, how dwelleth the love of God with thee? 
Now see, if you don't speak King James English, you don't know what I just said. But if you speak King James English, I'm talking about Kang James. You know that that man was quoting 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, and it says in the NIV, it says, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, that word pity, which also means compassion, in the Greek text actually has to do with the bowels. The bowels were the center of the emotions, the center of the affections. And he says, if you shut up your bowels of compassion, if you turn off your compassion mechanism against your brother when you see him in need, how dwelleth the love of God with thee? How can you say that the love of God dwells in you when you see a brother or sister in need and you have no compassion? And this man was taking me to task at that moment. He was looking at me saying, what is wrong with you? Don't you see that there's a homeless man sitting right next to you and you're wearing a, I was wearing a jacket and a, and a sweater. And he said, and you're sitting there all warm. And here's this poor homeless kid sitting next to you. And he said, how dwelleth the love of God? You should have seen the look in his face. He was so angry with me. And then he looked back at my brother and said, we got to do this right. And starts to unbutton his sweater. We got to do this right. We got to give this brother a sweater. We got to do this right. And as he's trying to take off his sweater, my brother's trying to convince him that he's not homeless. We got to do this right. And you know, for years, I I can't get that out of my mind. That this man said, we got to do this right. That if we don't have compassion on those who are less fortunate than us, we're not doing this right. That if we're looking at people in need while we're settled into our comfortable place, we're not doing this right. This man could not go back to his warm room, even in a convalescent hospital, he could not go back to his warm room wearing his nice sweater while looking at a homeless man who was getting ready to go out into the street in a t-shirt. He had to give up his sweater. He said, we got to do this right. Well, listen, I got news for you, church. We got to do this right. But we got to talk about what it means to do this right at the same time. Now, the scripture says he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. Today, we got to talk about the poor. And we got to talk about the responsibility of the church toward the poor. And we got to ask the question what is our responsibility toward the poor? When I talk about the responsibility of the church, I'm not talking about the responsibility of the organization because people in the church are always talking about what the church should be doing. And we forget the fact that the church is not an organization, it's a people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you hear that? Yeah. So when somebody comes to me and says, the church should be doing this, I look at them and say, hello, church. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, come on then, church. That means you should be doing this. That means we should be doing this. Not as an organization. I'm talking about as a culture. We got to do this right. As a people, we got to do this right. Not waiting for some leader to stand up and say, we're going to do this right from 9 a.m. to noon, the first Saturday of every month on this block. I'm talking about our everyday activity. We've got to do this right. But what does that mean? Does it mean that everyone who walks up to you on the street and says, let me borrow, let me borrow five dollars. You got to give five dollars to everybody who comes up on the street and asks you for five dollars. Does it mean that you have to give to anybody and everybody, every strange person? Does it mean you got to let the people wash your windows at the gas station anytime they ask to wash your windows at the gas station? Is that what it means? Well, first of all, we need to understand the biblical context when the Bible speaks of the poor, there is a consistent 
context throughout Scripture for the command. And there's many commands to remember the poor in Scripture. But all of those commands happen within a particular context. We're going to do this right. Deuteronomy chapter 15, 11, the scripture says, there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open hearted, open handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in the land. Do you hear that? He says, I want you to remember the poor. But when I'm talking about the poor, I'm talking about your fellow Israelites. Be open handed toward your fellow Israelites. Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Exodus 23 11 says during the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it. You see that the poor among your people. So the context of the command to remember the poor, the context of the command to be open handed towards the poor is the poor of Israel. God commanded Israel to take care of the poor in Israel. Now, the question is, is this just an Old Testament thing or does this translate into the New Testament? I want you to know that this is not just an Old Testament thing, but this was modeled in the early church as well. And we see it most prominently in Acts chapter 6, which speaks of the daily distribution to the widows. And what the early church established very early on in the life of the early church was the heart that said, we must not allow our people to starve. We cannot allow someone to come into our church, receive Jesus Christ, become a member, and then go home and starve. We can't do it. Now, in that time, the biggest problem was widowhood. Because in the ancient world, women were not able to go out and start businesses and make a living for themselves. If there was not a man to feed and clothe them and take care of them, women oftentimes starved. And so the first thing the early church did was, they said, we need to put together a benevolence fund to care for the widows among us who have no provision. And so they, they decided to inaugurate a daily distribution to care for the needs of widows. Now we know this because Acts chapter 6 tells us that in that daily distribution, there was a racial problem. Isn't it interesting that racism crept into the church very early on, six chapters into the book of Acts, you've got a racial problem. What happened? There were two groups there in the Jerusalem church. There were the Hellenists and there were the Hebrews. The Hebrews were the Hebrew-speaking Jews. The Hellenists were the Greek-speaking Jews. And what happened was the Greek-speaking Jews would come through the line, the, the widows would come through the line, and they'd get one little scoop of oatmeal or rice or whatever it was. But then the Hebrew-speaking Jews would come through the line, and they would get five scoops. And so the, the Hellenists were complaining. They said, this isn't right. These people are getting more than we are because of the color of their skin or the sound of their voice or or the, the language they're speaking. And they all came to the apostles and the apostles said it's not right for us to abandon the ministry of the word to make sure that food gets distributed properly. So let's appoint the seven deacons. And they appointed seven deacons in the house. And the whole job of the seven deacons was to make sure that the right people were getting the right stuff in the daily distribution to meet the needs of the poor In the church, not outside of the church. Notice that there's no place where the members of the early church went out into the neighborhoods and gave food giveaways to people outside of the church. They met the needs of the people inside of the church. Are you following me? 
In Romans chapter 15, verse 26, Paul informs the Romans that the churches of Macedonia and Achaia had made a contribution to the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. That is, people in other churches knew that there was a concentration of poor people in Jerusalem, in the church in Jerusalem, and people in other churches said, we need to help the poor in the church in Jerusalem because we cannot let our brothers and sisters, even in another part of the world, go hungry and starve. And so they sent an offering. And so here's the principle. The early church preached the gospel to those outside of the church and met the needs of those inside of the church. You hear that? When they went outside of the church, what they gave people was the gospel. But when they came inside of the church, they gave their money to meet the needs of the people inside of the church. But by and large, contemporary Christianity does the opposite. We give money to meet the needs of people outside of the church. And then we preach the gospel to the people inside of the church. And so people come into the church and get saved over and over again. But they go home and they're still battling poverty. But then the people outside of the church, even if they don't want Jesus, we're constantly looking for a way to meet their needs and show them the love of Jesus. But do you know why the early church was so attractive to outsiders? Because they saw them living out the command of Jesus. He said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. You love the folks in your midst. And a lot of people say, well, I love the brothers. I love everybody. Oh, I'm so full of the love of Christ. But if you see your brother in need, and thou shuttest up the bowels of compassion against him, how dwelleth the love of God with thee? You see, love is not an emotion. Love moves you to act. When was the last time you saw a need in the body of Christ and said, I'm going to meet that? A person in need. When was the last time you saw a single mother in the body of Christ struggling to raise her kids and said, you know what? I'm going to do something for you. So I don't have anything. Do you have $10? Do you know what $10 would mean sometimes to a single mother who's trying to raise kids on her? You know, I mean, something small, anything, something little. Can you take them to McDonald's? Well, no, don't take them to McDonald's. That's, you know, someplace else. Mm. Take them to get some fuss, $6. People were drawn to the early church because they saw how well Christians loved one another. Not because Christians were out on the street doing food giveaways to people outside of the church. They were doing food giveaways to people inside of the church. And the people on the outside said, I better get in there so I can partake of the resources that are in there. But if we're only given to people outside of the churches, then people inside say, you know what? I should leave the church so I can get some help. Well, mercy. (laughs) However, there is a context for meeting the needs of the poor outside of the church as well. There's a context for that. And that context is called hospitality. Look at your neighbor and say hospitality. Hospitality. Oh, Lord, I done shut this down. I had all my scriptures lined up. There it is. Hospitality. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Now, there's a couple things I need you to know about hospitality. Uh, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 34, it says, You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So God says, when you meet a stranger who's traveling in your midst, a stranger who comes through your city, 
a stranger that I put on your path, you are to offer that stranger hospitality. You are to treat that stranger like your native. Meaning, you, your first priority is to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. But the next priority is to love the stranger who comes into your midst as if he were a member of your flock. Now, if we did this in the right order, we would give ourselves to meeting one another's needs inside the body like, like crazy. But then we would go outside of the body and those that cross our path, we would treat them like they were members of the body. Which would make being a part of the body and a part, a member of the body of Christ more attractive. Because they would see this as a culture of the church rather than just as a good deed for people outside of the church. It's called hospitality. But there's another level to hospitality when you're dealing with people outside of the church. And that's Hebrews chapter 13 verse 2. You got to get, I've never heard this preached before. But it's in the Bible. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Now, I used to work at the bank as a teller when I was in college. I hated that job with a passion, but I loved that paycheck. Sometimes you got to do what you got to do, church. You don't start out with the job you want, but if you ain't faithful in the job you got, you ain't going to get the job you want. That's another sermon. But I was working as a teller, and, and, and we were told by our management, we were informed when we were first hired, that the corporate office employs a group of individuals that they call shoppers. And what a shopper does is comes into the branch and does a normal transaction, like a regular customer, but you have no idea that they're evaluating you. And so if you're a teller, you got to live every day. You got to treat every customer like they're a shopper because you never know which one is. And a shopper will come to your window. And if you don't greet them properly, that's a check. If you got a bad attitude, that's a check. If you don't use proper English, that's a check. If you get the amounts wrong, that's a check. If you take too long, that's a check. They, mark, they, were, they have a whole scale by which they are evaluating you and testing the fruit of your ministry on behalf of that branch. Why does the bank do this? The corporate office does this because they understand that every teller in every branch, at the moment they come face-to-face with the customer, represents the bank. Meaning when you go to the bank, you're not talking to a teller as an individual. You're talking to the bank. And if that teller does something negative, you got a bad taste in your mouth with that bank. Well, God knows that every believer in Jesus Christ represents the bank. Meaning when you come into contact with people outside in the world and they discover that you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are the face of the bank. And so what God does is he sends shoppers out. Angelic beings that come to your window to test the quality of your service in the body of Christ, to test the fruitfulness of your ministry. And the author of Hebrews says many have entertained angels without being aware of it, meaning that that wasn't just a man or a woman that you talked to on the street. That was an angelic being that God said, I want to see how much hospitality this person is going to offer. Get down there, angel. Go down there and ask him for $5 and see what his response is. Okay, follow me here. We're going somewhere. 
Now, going back to the original question, does that mean you better give everybody $5? I mean, man, if one out of a thousand people that asked me for $5 is an angel, and I don't know which one it is, I better give $5 to everybody, right? <laughs> Say, can I have five? You better take 10. You might be an angel, dog. <laughs> Why do I know? Because see, when I was working at the bank, I got shopped one time. And I had no idea. When you get shopped, you have no idea who it was. You can never look back and go, I know who it was. It was that man on Tuesday. You have no idea who it was. All you know is you go to the next staff meeting and they say, sir, they they call your name. Benjamin, stand up. And I stood up. You got shopped this last week. And they read my evaluation. And I got a five on a scale of one to five. I was like, I got that Joseph anointing. (laughs) Praise the Lord. (laughs) Okay. Now, so if, if I know I'm going to be shopped, I might get shopped. Now don't go around calling people angels. The point is uh, it says unawares because some believers think they're aware. I met a dude on the street yesterday. He was an angel. (laughs) I knew he was an angel. No, that's not biblical. It says unaware. So you'll never be able to look back and say, that dude was an angel. Because sometimes you're entertaining devils. And they're masquerading as angels of light. And so you can't treat everyone indiscriminately. Now, we see this happening with Peter at the gate beautiful in Acts chapter 3. And so Peter, he and John are going to the temple to pray. It's three o'clock in the afternoon. And as they're entering into the temple, there's a man lame from his mother's womb. There were all these poor people sitting around the entrance to the temple and they were asking for alms. And, you know, there were the great, you know, Pharisees and scribes. And, you know, sometimes they throw a coin here and throw a coin there and and give, you know. And so Peter walks up and he sees this one guy and the guy says, alms for the poor. And Peter says, hold on, John. Hold on, dog. And he stops and just looks at this guy for a second. That must have been uncomfortable for that dude. He's just looking, Peter's just looking at him. And Peter goes, look at me, look at me. That's what he says. Peter said, look at us. Look at, look at us. Look, look at here. Look at here. What's Peter doing? You know what he's doing? He's turning on his discernment. He's asking the Lord. He says, I sense something. Hold on, God's doing something here. This isn't just a normal moment. Notice Peter didn't pull out his obligatory $5 and say, there you go. He stopped to discern what the Lord was doing. He didn't know this man from Adam. He said, look at us. And he looked. And when he had clarity, discernment, and the spirit, he knew what God was doing. This is, listen to what he says to the man. Silver and gold have I none. Now stop right there for a second. Because that wasn't true. Peter had plenty of silver and gold. (laughs) And he was not saying it the way most of us say it. You know, when somebody on the street says, can I have five dollars? Hey, man, I got nothing. I ain't got nothing. That's a lie. You know that's a lie. You got a twomp in your pocket. Sometimes you got a Benjamin in your pocket. I ain't got nothing, man. I ain't got nothing. Yes, you do. Stop lying and saying you ain't got nothing. You got a, there's an ATM right there. You got money. What you should be saying is No. Not I don't have anything, but I don't have anything for you. 
And that's actually what Peter was saying in that moment. When he said silver and gold have I none, he didn't mean I don't have any money. The scripture says that people gave their offerings and laid them at the feet of the apostles in every service. I mean, the apostles are preaching and people are throwing money at the altar. At the, he had plenty of silver and gold. Where do you think they got the food to feed the widows every morning? There was all kinds of silver and gold. People were selling houses and laying the month, the whole, I mean, people were selling houses. How much is a house? And given that as an offering, nobody even asked for it. It was supernatural. There was all kinds of money flowing around in the early church. Peter meant silver and gold have I none for you. But what I have for you, I give unto you. In other words, Silver and gold is not what God is telling me to give you right now, but he is telling me to give you something. And so I'm about to give you what God is telling me to give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Stand up and walk. Bam! The man gets healed and he jumps up and walk. You see what I'm saying? Peter did not have a prescriptive approach to an encounter with a man who had less than he had. He was sensing in the spirit what it is that God is asking me to give this man right now. And if God is telling me to give silver and gold, I'm going to give my silver and gold. And if God is telling me not to give silver and gold, I'm not going to give silver and gold. If God is telling me to pray for you, I'm going to pray for you. And if God is telling me to preach the gospel to you, I'm going to preach the gospel to you. But it requires discernment. And it requires understanding. In other words, in every interaction with the poor and needy, we have to sense what is really needed and what God is really Providing. Now, the thing we need to understand is it starts at home, and this is what, where I'm going to focus today. It starts at home. When it says he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. It starts at home. He has scattered, ab- excuse me, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor among his people. Yeah. And what we need to get in our hearts and minds is the fact that the church is a covenant community, not a Christian club. If you are a member of the church, you are a part of a covenant community. It means that we are, a covenant, uh, we are a community that is in covenant with God and with one another. And this is something that's almost completely lacking in the body of Christ is covenant consciousness. The consciousness of being in a covenant. When you get married, you're conscious of your covenant. Because you stand at an altar and say, I promise to love, honor, and cherish you for better or for worse in sickness and in health, till death do us part, as long as we both shall live. So help me God. I am pledging myself in holy matrimony, and so I live with the sense of covenant consciousness with my wife. But we don't feel that way oftentimes in our relationship with God or with the church. Why? Because we can just leave the church. You know, somebody hurts you in the church, just get up and bounce. And I'm not saying it's always wrong to leave the church. Because sometimes you need to leave that church. I mean, some of y'all are here because you left a church and you should have left. And others of you are here, you left the church and you shouldn't have left. Am I saying go back? No. Because sometimes you just can't go back. You just need to make a decision. You're not going to leave the next one. You with me? It's like if you got divorced and remarried. Some, Some of you got divorced and remarried, you shouldn't have done it. But am I saying leave your second spouse? No. All right. Praise the Lord. So what we have to learn how to facilitate in the body of Christ is covenant consciousness. What does it mean to live in conscious covenant with God and with one another? 
consciousness of our covenant as the community of God begins in the moment of generosity. In other words, people feel disconnected from the body until somebody meets one of their needs. And we feel disconnected from the body until we meet somebody's need. Sometimes you just need an opportunity to meet somebody's need or somebody needs an opportunity to meet your need. And at that very place where we're meeting one another's needs, we are experiencing what it means to be a covenant community. The meeting of needs is the substance of right relationships. You know what what it means to be in right relationship and righteousness when it says his righteousness endures forever. Righteousness is about being in right relationship. That's what righteousness is. It means to be right in your relationship with God and with one another. And this man has right relationships because he scatters about his gifts to the poor. He is generous to those who are less needy than himself. And because of that, there is an enduring quality to the rightness of his relationships. Now, we got to talk about what poverty actually is. The poor are those who lack the resources necessary to live like full-fledged human beings. You hear that? Poverty is the state in which one lacks the necessary resources to live like a full-fledged human being. Poverty is the degradation of our humanity. You can identify poverty real easily. Whenever you see someone living in any kind of condition where you'd say, no human being should live like that, you've just seen poverty. It's like there's no, a human being should not live like that. Where it just breaks your heart and you go, no human being should live like that. That's poverty. What you're seeing is poverty. Anything that takes the standard of human living that we all intuitively know to be right, reasonable, Every human being should be able to eat. Right? I mean, when you see somebody that has no food to eat, you're like, that ain't right. That's just not right. No human being should live on this planet without having food to eat. Right? A human being should have shelter, a place to live. Right? A human being should have safety and security. Right? A human being should have love and acceptance. When you see a human being and, and they have no experience of love. When you hear somebody say, I grew up in a home where my father never once hugged me. My mother never, I, nobody ever hugged me and said, I love you. That's emotional poverty. Yeah. Like, that's not right. Yeah. No human being should have to live like that. When you hear somebody say that, the first thing you think is, come here, let me hug you. <laughs> I want to hug you right now. I'm a hug. By the time I'm done hugging you, you'll know you've been hugged. I'm going to hug the mess out of you right now. Why? Because no human being should have to live like that. Human beings should be loved and accepted. How about self-confidence? When you see somebody, I just, I can't do anything. I can't do anything. What? That's not right. No human being should live their lives feeling like they can't do anything right. That everything they do is a failure. That nothing they do is significant and means anything to anybody. Show me something. you. I just want to see something you do and go and affirm it. No, you're good at that. You know, it breaks my heart when my daughter says, my little girl, she's four years old. And she already says, Daddy, I can't do this very good. Daddy, I can't rhyme very good. Daddy, I can't do this. I said, no, baby. No. No, no. You're awesome. You're so smart. I don't want her to walk around feeling like I lack something. Even if she can't do that well, I'm not going to tell her that. I'm going to say, no, baby, you can do it well. You just don't know it yet. You just haven't figured out how. But when you learn, oh, you're going to be so awesome at that. 
I don't want her to feel like she lacks anything. No human being should walk around feeling like I can't do anything right. Self-confidence. How about self-actualization? I can never fulfill my destiny. There's no purpose for my life. That's a form of poverty. The poverty that says I'll never fulfill the desires of my heart. I'll never fulfill the significant mission of my life. I'll never accomplish anything that is of significance to anyone else in the earth. That's a form of poverty. And this is what I just took you through is Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of human needs. Abraham Maslow said that there's five levels of human need. And if the bottom ones are not met, you're not even aware of the top ones. Think about it. Now, th- you've got to get this, you gotta get this in your heart and mind because if you want to help somebody, if you want to meet some needs, you've got to understand that there's a hierarchy to human needs. If somebody doesn't have any food and shelter and you're offering them a career, you want to talk to them and say, I'll advise you on your career. Well, okay, that's cool, but I need something to eat. Meaning when you are hungry, you can't think of anything else. Even if you offer them love. And you haven't put food in their belly yet. That's why if you're preaching, if you really want to get somebody saved, you need to feed them first if they're hungry. In other words, that's the hospitality element, right? Okay. And if there's somebody in the church, I'll just say this. If there's somebody, listen, there should not be a group of us that go out and eat big super burritos after church on Sunday. While there's another group of people that goes home and eats dry tortillas. It's not right. We got to meet the needs of one another. Okay. So we got to begin to see poverty as not simply a financial economic situation and see it more as a complex hierarchy of components. Humans are complex beings with complex needs. Poverty is the state in which real needs go unmet for extended periods of time. Right. So when it says he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor, it means that he is constantly identifying and meeting the needs of other members of the body of Christ. That's what it means. He has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. Every single one of us in this place has some form of poverty in some place in our life. And wherever there's an unmet need, an unhealed hurt, an unfulfilled desire, an unsatisfied need, wherever that is, wherever there's an un in your life, there is a place of poverty because it's a place of want. It's a place of need. And there's good wants and there's bad wants. But even underneath the bad wants that we would call lust is a real want because lust typically transpires where there's a deficit of love. You see? And so we can even help people who are battling in that area by filling that deficit of love. See, it's always a healing issue and then a repentance issue. But we try to hit the repentance issue real hard without addressing the healing issue. We demand people to change without actually meeting the need that caused the problem in the first place. But if we get it in our hearts and minds that the church is primarily a healing community and not a demanding, exacting community, not a legalistic community, a loving community before it is a lawful community, then we begin to live by the law of love. But the law without love is legalistic and religious. And Jesus hates it. The principle of scattering abroad your gifts to the poor is the principle of blessing people that can't bless you back. Because see, a lot of times we tend to hang out with people who are in our same economic level. Or emotional level. Right? Or intellectual level. And so what do we do? You know, all of us make 50000 a year in this circle of 10. And so we go to lunch and we take turns paying. We say, oh, we're so generous. No, you're not. 
It's not generous to buy me lunch today when you know I'm going to buy you lunch next week. How is that generous? We're just taking turns. Really what it is is a pyramid scheme. (laughs) You know, because one of us hits the jackpot every week, right? (laughs) You know, that's not generous. I mean, that's, that's not bad. That's not bad. By the way, if you're the one in the circle that never pays, you know, you need to to get saved or a job or something. (laughs) Don't be the one in the circle that never pays. So I love these people. They always, they always buy. (laughs) They always offer to buy. What I'm talking about is finding a need that you can meet without the expectation of being repaid. That's, that's it's scattering abroad your gifts to the poor. It means you find someone that you can help who can't help you back. Find someone you can love who can't love you back in that same way. It means that I give without expecting a return, meaning it's not an investment. It's actually a gift because whenever I expect a return, I made an investment. But if I give a gift, I'm giving it freely, releasing it from my hand. It's mine no more. It's gone. It's yours. I benefit nothing from it. I'm simply giving it to you. And when I give it to you, I put it in your power. Praise the Lord. Amen. Good to see you, sir. How you feeling? (laughs) Awesome. We prayed for you. Did you see that? Oh, you didn't. I thought the Lord healed him and he's here. (laughs) But we prayed earnestly for you. So in the spirit, it's done. Amen. His righteousness endures forever. His right relationships endure because he's a giver. You see, generosity preserves relationships. He'll be remembered. His righteousness endures The enduring form of righteousness is the form of righteousness that comes from generosity. It comes from giving. He will be remembered. And it says it above in verse 6. A righteous man will be remembered forever. You see, a gift is one of the most memorable things, isn't it? You know, when you look at a gift that you've received from a person, you always think of that person, don't you? You know, Mauda gave me a bottle of cologne that I used for two years. And every morning I went, thank you, Mauda. I couldn't pick up that bottle of cologne without thinking about Mauda. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every single morning, every single morning, when I'd look at that cologne, I would think of Mauda. Wow, Mauda gave me this. Thank you, Mauda. Didn't it just make you feel good when you look at, I, had, I have a hat at home that the Carringtons gave me. And you know, some people sat on it, so it's not in the best of shape. But, but even still, when I look at that hat, it, I can't stop thinking about the Carringtons. Look at that hat that they gave me. Thank you, Carringtons. You know, when you look at a gift, and see, that's why you don't want to just give people food. So, so most, most believers, the only thing I know how to do to be generous is to buy you some food. Can't nobody remember that? They only, they only, they're only thankful once, well, twice, but, you know, and, and then it's over. Right? You know? I mean, it's just, you know, it's just a, a, a it's, it's, you know, you find a gift that keeps on giving. You know, learn how to give gifts to people that are lasting generosity preserves relationships. So a gift is one of the most, so, so think about the centurion. I was thinking about the centurion in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 tells us about this Roman centurion. He was a God-fearer and the God-fearers were Greeks or, or they were non-Jews who were attracted to the God of Israel. They would go to the synagogues, the, the Hebrew 
places of working, the, the Greek-speaking Hebrew places of worship, and they would go and they would listen to the, the reading of the law and the prophets and the writings, and they would worship the God of Israel, and they were God-fearers. They knew he was the real God. They knew they had to deal with him, but they were afraid to get circumcised, so they wouldn't go all the way in and become full Jews. But they were, you know, you know it's like a gang, you got to get jumped in. Well, you had to get cut in, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? It's like once you're in, you are in, right? But the God-fearers, they were afraid to get cut, so they would come to, the, to the, the synagogues and they'd worship with the Jews. But this guy, Cornelius, he did two things. Number one, he gave gifts to the poor of Israel. Number two, he prayed every day. He spent time praying. And in Acts chapter 10, verse 4, the scripture says that an angel came to Cornelius as he was praying and said, Your gifts and prayers have come up as a memorial offering before God. God remembers every gift that you gave. God remembers every prayer that you've prayed. The stuff that you felt like nobody appreciated you for, it doesn't matter if anybody appreciates you because God remembers it. See, this is the thing. You are in bondage if you stop giving because your gifts are not being appreciated. You are in bondage to the response of others. But you break free from that bondage when you make a decision to give, not because others receive it and appreciate it, but because you know God sees it and appreciates it. And so you're giving to the body of Christ as unto the Lord. And so this angel came to Cornelius and said, your prayers and gifts have come up as a memorial before God. God remembers. So this is what God wants you to do. Go inquire in the home of one named Simon, a tanner for one named Peter, and uh, do whatever he tells you to do. And so he sends messengers to this home, and Peter goes with them, and Peter preaches the gospel to all these Gentiles, and they all receive Jesus Christ and are filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you see, God responded by sending Peter to preach the gospel to his household. Why? Because God said, I can't forget what you've given You know what lives on in your life after you're gone? Not what you've received, but what you've given. Nobody's going to talk about how much money you made, but people may talk about how much money you gave. Nobody's going to talk about how much you achieved, but people will talk about how much you contributed to the lives of others. Or what about the woman with the alabaster jar in Matthew chapter 26, verse 13? The scripture says that this woman came and broke this alabaster jar of perfume, expensive perfume over his feet and washed his feet with her hair. And Judas spoke up and said, this ain't right. That woman could have sold that and given the money to the poor. You know how many poor people that could have fed? And the scripture says Judas didn't say this because he cared about the poor. He said it because he was greedy. I learned a long time ago that half the folks who will criticize you about anything you do don't actually care about the thing they're criticizing. They're just trying to find something to criticize. Because if you can't accomplish anything in your life, what you do is you just criticize somebody else who is. And that makes you feel real good. Anyway, that's another one. I'm getting off track here. Jesus said, the poor you'll have with you always, but I won't always be with you. But what this woman has done... Jesus said this, mark my words, everywhere in the world where the gospel is preached, what this woman has done will be remembered. Why? She gave. She gave. And then lastly, but not least, in the upper room, Jesus sits with his disciples on the night he's betrayed, celebrates the Passover feast with them. 
takes out a towel and basin and washes their feet, and then sits them back at the table, takes a piece of bread, he breaks it, passes it around, says, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Why in remembrance? He says, by this you're going to remember the price that I paid. Because I saw your spiritual poverty. And I was willing to make provision for your poverty. And I was willing to pay the price for it with my own life. So you're going to remember me for this. You're going to remember what I'm about to do. You'll never forget it. Because every time you come together to worship, you're going to remember the cross. It's a gift that keeps on giving. And just like I sprayed perfume and said, thank you, Maura, you're going to lift your hands in worship and say, thank you, Jesus. Every time the presence of God comes and the fragrance of his holiness is released among you, you're going to remember the cross and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Why? Because he was willing to give. And he was willing to give something that we could never give back to him, something that we could never repay him for. He was willing to sacrifice something that he knew it was once and only. He knew that it was a one-time thing that we'd never be able to repay him for, but he was willing to give it. Just as he washed the feet of his disciples and said, See, I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet. Now you should wash one another's feet. I've been willing to freely give to you. You should freely give to me. Freely give. Oh, that God would release a spirit of free giving in the body of Christ. That that would characterize our relationships with one another. Free giving. That I would find something that I could sow into your life. Listen, we become the body of Christ and experience ourselves as a covenant community when we come together as a body bringing our gifts. Remember, your gift is not what you have, it's what you give. It's not a gift till you give it. You see? And if I only give it in in exchange for something in return, it's not a gift anymore. It might be a skill or a business, but it's not a gift. It's a gift when I give it, when I give it freely. There should be no poor among us. There should be no poor among us. Why? We're a covenant community, not a Christian club. I mean, we're in covenant with God and with one another. Covenant with God and with one another. That if one person is struggling, and this is the key, this command is not just for the haves. Because we tend to make two categories in our minds. Because some of us are sitting here listening to this message, and we're thinking, yeah, people need to be meeting my needs here. We're a covenant community. Thank you, Pastor. I'm tired of everybody leaving me out, not not paying for me. No, this is for all of us here. It's not for the haves and the have-nots. If you're here today and you say, well, I'm struggling financially. I'm in that financial poverty situation. I wish some people would love on me in that way. Well, then you want to reap, you got to sow. You'll reap what you sow. You say, well, I, I don't have any friends. Then show yourself friendly. Nobody takes me to lunch. Then who have you taken to lunch? Well, nobody invites me. Well, don't you have a mouth? That, that drives me crazy when people say, I went to that church. Nobody said hi to me. Who did you say hi to? 
why is it everybody else's responsibility to do this thing for you? I was there at that church six months and nobody said hi to me. Maybe because you were walking around with a scowl on your face that said, don't talk to me. You want to be a friend? Show yourself friendly. You'll have plenty of friends. So, well, I can't afford to take anybody to a nice restaurant. Listen, take two pieces of bread, put some peanut butter between it. And then say, look, I don't have much, but I would love to make a peanut butter sandwich for you after church next Sunday. I'm telling you, it's just about doing something. It's about taking a step. I'll never forget when I was in college and a buddy of mine, one of our buddies in college, he, he, he had a lot of money and he was generous constantly. And we were constantly receiving from him. And the best advice my mother ever gave me, she said, son, don't keep receiving from him and not reciprocate. I said, but mom, I can't do what he's doing. I don't have any money. She said, nobody asked you to do what he's doing, but bring him here and make him some spaghetti. Take him to Starbucks, if that's all you can do, and buy him a coffee. But you've got to do something to show him that you're not just a taker, but you're a giver as well. You know, that was the best advice she ever gave me. That man is my friend to this day. You want righteousness that endures? Right relationships with God and others that endure? You've got to enter into the ministry of generosity. You've got to find some needs to meet. Find somebody to bless. By this all men will know that you're my disciples. That you love one another. Feel good about one another? Yeah, that's nice. But greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Oh, I just love you so much. But I'm not willing to lift a finger to do anything for you, but I love you. (laughs) Jesus says, you want me to show you love? And he offered his hands to those who nailed him to the cross. And he wasn't feeling any goosebumply bubbly emotion at that moment. He was feeling searing pain. But let me tell you something, that was love. That was love. You want to know what love is? When someone in crisis can call you at 3 o'clock in the morning, and they know they can call you, that's love. Loving intentionally. Going beyond our boundaries, beyond our barriers to love. That's love. If you see your brother in need and you shut up your bowels of compassion against him, how dwelleth the love of God with you? We got to get this right. We got to do 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 this thing. Righteousness that endures. Covenant consciousness. It begins at the moment of generosity. Let's pray. Abba Father, we adore you. We honor you. We love you. We thank you for first loving us. And you loved us so sacrificially 
You loved us with a kind of love that's unheard of in this world. You showed your love to us in a way that I've never heard of anybody showing their love. You gave your son. I mean, I've heard of people giving their own lives for loving others, but giving their son? You gave your son. How great a love is this? How great a love is this? Mighty God, I pray that our hearts would be open to radically receive that love. And I pray that that love would flow right through us to one another. That we would truly live as a covenant community. I prayed in Jesus' name. And while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, nobody's looking around. There's somebody here today, at least one person. You've never opened your heart to receive the love of the Father. Jesus Christ put it all on the table for you. He gave everything. Because he loves you. I know there's so many perceptions about coming to faith in Christ that it's about Christianity. And I'm telling you, it's not about Christianity. It's not about an entity. It's about Christ. And how much he loves you. Today, we offer you the love of Christ. You can receive it into your heart right now. And it'll change your life. It'll heal you from the inside out. It'll set you free. Say, but there's so many things in my life that I just can't seem to change. And if I'm not ready to change those things, maybe I shouldn't come to Christ yet. Let me tell you something. You come to Christ and he makes you ready to change. You come to Christ just as you are and say, Lord, would you help me? I I don't even know how to want to change these things. Would you change my want? That's what it's about. It's about trusting him to fix you where you can't fix yourself. It's about trusting him to heal you where you can't heal yourself. You know what? We're going to love you as a community that's going to support you. You won't have to do it alone. We're going to be here for you every step of the way. And right now I'm not talking to people who have responded to this invitation again and again and again. A lot of times when we give this invitation, people who are already believers in Jesus Christ feel pricked to the heart and they respond. But I'm talking right now to to somebody in this room who has never responded. Or maybe you did respond, but it wasn't real years ago. But I'm talking to somebody you, you know in your heart, you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But right now, you want to take a step. I'm not asking you to be perfect. I'm just asking you to take a step. Nobody's looking around. Just me. Would you just lift your hand right where you are? Say, that's me. I'm ready. I'm ready to take a step towards God. Anybody here? Holy Spirit, soften every heart. Soften every mind. Yes, I see that hand right there. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord. 
Thank you, Lord. Father, I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus that you'd settle in on that young man's heart right now who lifted his hand. And that you would establish the work that you've just done in him powerfully. I give you praise for it. Is there anybody else? I just want to just take another minute. Maybe one more person. Thank you, Lord. Now we're here in this place and you've heard the word today. There's others of you. You say, I believe in Jesus. You know Jesus is Lord and Savior. But maybe you haven't been very covenant conscious with the body of Christ. Maybe you've never taken a step of generosity towards someone else in the body. Or maybe it's just been a long time. Maybe you've been so focused on your own need that you couldn't see anybody else's. But whatever it is, you're here today. You say, I'm going to take a step this week. I'm going to take a step this week. I'm going to find a way to be generous to somebody this week in the body of Christ to meet somebody's need, to see it and meet it. If that's you, just lift your hand right where you are this week. All right. Thank you, the three of you that lifted your hands. Okay, let me rephrase that. This call is for everybody. I'm not looking for three people who will say, I'm going to actually hear this message and apply it. This is for everybody. Everybody should have raised their hand. Let me just make that clear. I expect everybody who heard this word to take a step this week to say, I'm not just going to be a hearer of the word. I see. I set you up for that. That's my fault. I'm, I'm not, I'm not scolding you. It's my fault. I take responsibility. I set it up like I was looking for a few. <laughs> But let me just make it articulate, let me just articulate it clearly. I'm not looking for a few. I'm looking for everybody to say, I'm going to take a step this week. Now, let me ask you again. How many? (laughs) Well, say, I'm going to take a step this week. Go ahead, lift your hands. How many say, I'm going to be obedient to this word this week. I'm going to do it. All right, praise the Lord. We just had ourselves a revival, church. Amen. Everybody stand. We're going to close the service now, but that young man that lifted his hands, would you just, after, after we dismiss, just come talk to me for a minute, would you? I just want to shake your hand and meet you. Lift your hands to the Lord. Father, I speak your blessing over this house and over all who dwell in it, over all of your sons and daughters, those who are near, those who are far. And I speak blessing, strength, encouragement, joy, peace. May the spirit of generosity flow through you and rest upon you. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Give God a shout of praise. Now, we're dismissing. The altar's open. If anybody needs special prayer, we got people here to pray for you. Also, um... We're going to go to the baptism in about 10 minutes. We're going to start heading that direction.